This is an ABC podcast. Downstairs in the coffee shop on the bottom floor of this building, you'll find a small sign proudly reminding customers that the cafe doesn't use plastic straws. But you can, of course, buy a takeaway coffee, as most of us do, and it comes in a waterproof cup with a plastic lid. One of the little inconsistencies of modern life. Or perhaps not such a small inconsistency when you think of how many takeaway coffees are served around the world every hour of every day. And here's another one. At my local supermarket, there are no single-use plastic bags. They've been banned. But you can readily buy all range of products, from cheese slices to biscuits to bottled water to lollies, that are sometimes double-wrapped and even triple-wrapped in plastic packaging. Which begs the questions, how serious are we about plastic waste and plastic pollution? And what have we achieved so far? Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Today's program is part of the Big 20, our century so far. Radio National's spotlight on the first 20 years of this century. Over the past two decades, we've become increasingly sensitive to the overuse of plastic and more concerned about its environmental impact. And yet, according to the World Wildlife Fund, we've actually used more plastic since the year 2000 than in all the decades leading up to that date. And an awful lot of that material, once discarded, has ended up in our oceans. On this program in the past, we've talked about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, a vast floating island of plastic junk in the North Pacific Ocean. It's huge and obvious. But it seems the size of the plastic waste problem below the surface of our oceans has largely remained hidden. Until now. Britta Denise Hardesty is a research scientist with the CSIRO, Australia's national research agency. And just recently, she and her team completed a new global estimate of the amount of microplastic refuse on the ocean floor. We actually did surveys here within Australian waters off the Great Australian Bight, and we sampled in the deepest depths of the ocean up to 3,000 metres in depth and several hundred kilometres offshore there, and used an underwater autonomous vehicle, so really, you know, a little underwater robot to go out and to collect some samples for us. And we brought those back to the lab, and we looked at those to really say, okay, what how much, you know, what's the type of plastic and what are we finding in the deepest depths of the ocean here? And then we actually took the estimates that we have and we extrapolated those to the size of the global ocean to say, what does this look like at the global scale? So we estimate that there's somewhere between 8 and 14 million tons of microplastic on the ocean floor. And if you want to put that in context for your listeners, that's probably somewhere around the order of 8 to 12 plastic carry bags full of microplastics for every single metre of coastline on every continent around the world, excluding Antarctica. Now, that's significantly higher than previous estimates, isn't it, of microplastic in the ocean? 
Well, one thing that we did is we actually compared, so how much plastic do people estimate is floating on the ocean surface, and how does that compare to how much plastic we think is on the seabed floor? And what we find is around the order of 25 to 35 times more plastic is in the ocean floor than is actually floating on the ocean surface. So that's pretty confronting. And yet our focus, hasn't it, on this problem has, to date at least, it seems to have been on what's floating in the oceans, not on on what's on the ocean floor. Well, it's a lot easier to see what's on the surface of the ocean than what's underneath. And I think it's also important to remember that plastics may be positively buoyant, which means they float, or they may be negatively buoyant, which means they sink, or they may be neutrally buoyant, which means they may move up and down the water column. And as things attach to the outsides of them, or you get microbes or bacteria on them, they may get heavier and then may sink. Although, yes, it's absolutely true. We focus much more on what we can see, what's on the ocean surface, or really most of our work is really focused on what's on the coastline. And yes, most of our plastic from some previous work that we've done is really stuck in our coastlines, on the backshore, within the vegetation and in those areas there. So one could view that as a story of hope and optimism because it's going to be much easier, much less expensive and more likely to succeed to manage our waste before it gets out in the ocean in the first place. At the same time, (laughs) that tells us, however, that there's a substantial amount of plastics, you know, in these places that are really inaccessible for cleaning up. But our awareness of the problem hasn't, by the sounds of it, impacted on the levels of of plastic, of microplastic in the oceans. In, In fact, you estimate that the level is likely to increase, don't you? Well, we know that how much plastic is entering the oceans is increasing and that it is increasing through time. At the same time, public awareness is absolutely increasing, and I think we're starting to see a shift in our relationship with plastic, and I think people are starting to ask, request, require, demand differences in some of our products and in some of the processes that we're using. Given that we have, by your estimate, up to 14 million tonnes of the stuff sitting on the ocean floor, we're behind the eight ball, aren't we? Even if we change our attitudes now, there's still a massive environmental problem to deal with, isn't there? There's definitely a huge environmental problem that we want to be managing. And really, I know I just can't reiterate this enough, the best, smartest, most least expensive and most effective way to do this is really going to be stopping getting it out there in the first place. So it's going to be working with government, working with industry, working with citizens that all have a role to play to really help reduce it getting out there in the first place. Obviously, we're not going to go out to 3,000 meters in depth in the ocean and clean up these little teeny tiny bits of plastic. You know, microplastics are those that are smaller than five millimeters in diameter or in size. So it's the really teeny tiny bits. And those are not the pieces we're going to be able to pick up. So let's go and deal with it when it's large before it's broken down into those small pieces. And really, let's let's address the issue before it gets out there into our waterways, into our creeks and streams and rivers and ocean in the first place. For the past 20 years, various international organisations and agencies have championed efforts to curb our plastic usage and clean up the environment. Why haven't they been successful? Conservation Research Fellow Stephanie Burrell is from BirdLife International. 
Yeah, so we were really interested in finding out how much impact all of the global commitments that have been made around the world would actually have on reducing plastic pollution. You know, we've got our oceans and the UN Sustainable Development Goals, European Union Strategy, the UN has a, a bunch of programs, a clean seas, and we were really curious how much impact that was actually going to have. And so what we did is we used the data that was available and we modelled future projections of plastic emissions into the environment at the country level. And we found that even if all of the countries in the world made good on their commitments, we would still be seeing at least 53 million metric tonnes entering the environment by 2030. Let me just jump in here for a second. That future forecast of 53 million, just to be clear, is an annual estimate. And according to Stephanie Burrell's research, somewhere between 24 and 34 million metric tonnes of plastic emissions are already entering aquatic ecosystems every year. And that's the level of waste various international bodies and their commitments have struggled to deal with. The thing with those commitments are that none of them really actually have numeric targets. So they don't say that they're going to reduce plastic pollution by 20%. It's sort of very sort of ambiguous, vague commitments of we're going to ban single-use plastics or, you know, improve recycling and things like that. So we had to make quite a few assumptions about how much those commitments would actually make at a numerical level. Now, that might seem surprising, perhaps some might think cynical, that actual figures haven't been attached to national and international targets. But according to Stephanie Burrell, there are complications. Well, we don't really know what the tolerable level of plastic in the environment is. So what would be a good target? Is it 8 million metric tonnes? Is it, you know, 20 million metric tonnes? What's acceptable to go into the environment? And many people argue that that would be zero. But as long as we use plastics, we're going to see some escape into the environment. It's just the nature of, of these types of products. And it's also really hard to put numerical targets on it because the trade of waste and the trade of plastic materials is so ubiquitous. It's actually really hard to track where they all go and then therefore how to reduce them to a specific target level. So how did you come by your numbers and how do you know that they have veracity? So we have about 15 experts on our in a working group and we went through all of the commitments and we used our collective experience and expertise to estimate roughly how much each of those commitments might contribute. The thing to remember about our work is that we were very optimistic and very generous with those reductions based on those commitments and we also applied them to every other country in the same income status. So what I mean by that is, say Indonesia has made a commitment to reduce their plastic, single-use plastics by 70% by 2025. We then made a, a calculated estimate of however much that would be for a, a lower middle-income country. And then we applied that same reduction effort to every other lower middle-income country. So we're assuming that not only the countries that are making commitments are actually taking action to reduce plastic pollution, but so is every other country. And it is overly optimistic, I would say. So before we actually even think about how we can address this issue, those national targets or national commitments and the ways in which they're measured, that itself needs to be fixed up. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's the first thing we need to do is actually to come together and have an agreement on how much are we willing to emit into the environment? What is that tolerable level? Is it 5 million metric tons? Is it zero? And then put in place actions and track data of plastics as it moves through the economy. So from production to being made into products to the consumer and then into waste. And currently, industry have a lot of that data, but it's not transparent and it's not shared with the public and also a lot of the information isn't standardised. And so we really struggled from a scientific perspective of having good quality information to really accurately define the flows of plastic and where they're going. And so that's crucial in understanding where all the plastic's going, but also how to enforce targets or to make meaningful reductions. If we came to the conclusion that we did need to not only clean up the plastics that's there, but be ready for those future levels of plastic that you're talking about, what sort of effort would that take in terms of human hours? Is it possible to estimate that? Yeah. So one of the estimates that we made for reaching the 8 million metric tonne target per annum is the 40% cleanup effort of annual emissions. So Bearing in mind, this doesn't mean the plastic that's already in the environment. And that would take over a billion people participating in the international coastal cleanup that's run by Ocean Conservancy every year. It's hard to imagine that happening, isn't it? Without being uh, pessimistic about all of this, it's hard to imagine that in the current environment, we will be committed enough to make that kind of commitment. Absolutely. I I don't... And that's why it's really critical to actually target the source of plastics in the first place. So we need to stop making as much disposable plastic product as we possibly can. Otherwise, we're never going to be in a position to be able to clean it up or manage it. So where is most of our plastic coming from? Well, there are no surprises there. Beth Gardner is a London-based journalist and author with a focus on pollution. Plastic is made from byproducts of oil and gas And if you look at the fossil fuel industry now, the big oil and gas companies from Exxon and Shell to Chevron and all the others, they are getting nervous because they are looking to a future where they're starting to see demand for their fuels for oil and gas flattening and eventually declining as people shift towards electric vehicles. And hopefully we start to get a little more serious about climate change. So these companies are in need of revenue. They are in need of a new area of growth. And for the most part, they have settled on plastic as that source of growth. So while, you know, you and I and and all sorts of people who are concerned about this issue are carrying around our reusable coffee cups and we're, you know, trying to recycle our bottles and all of that, the biggest, most profitable, most polluting companies in the world are actually spending tens of billions of dollars to expand their production of plastic And if their plans come to fruition, we are heading for a future where twice as much plastic is made and sold in the coming decades than we have now. Many people would get the connection between plastic and oil companies, you know, oil being the source of plastic. But what's the connection with gas companies, gas producers? Well, this has actually been a a really important area in recent years because there's been an enormous expansion of natural gas drilling, particularly in North America, linked to fracking. Now, when you frack, you get methane, which is natural gas that gets used for heating and electricity and other kinds of things. But you also get these byproducts. There's particularly one known as ethane, which is harder to use. It's largely been a waste product. 
But in fact, it can be used to make plastic. So what you are seeing now, if you look across North America, where you know fracking has just expanded exponentially over the past decade, is that these companies, which are hurting because the price of natural gas has really tanked because there's so much of it now, they are looking for a new source of money and they are seeing that they can actually monetize this ethane. So in places like Texas and in Pennsylvania, Ohio, where there's a lot of fracking, we are starting to see a big build out of enormous industrial facilities known as ethane crackers, which take all that ethane that previously would have gone to waste. Now it's a revenue stream and they are turning it into plastic. Just recently, a report on NPR, National Public Radio in the United States, accused the oil and gas industry of intentionally talking up the effectiveness of recycling in order to mislead consumers and encourage them to use more plastic, or at least to not feel as guilty about their increasing usage of plastic. Beth Gardner again. Yeah, it's really true. And, you know, it's quite shocking. I think certainly the oil and gas industry, the petrochemical and plastic producers are aware that there's been a a really big increase over the last few years in public concern about this issue of plastic pollution. And they have turned to recycling, not so much as an actual strategy to deal with the problem, but as a sort of, you know, what gets called greenwash, a way to sort of brush it over, make people feel better about plastic. In fact, the best estimate says that only 9% of the plastic ever produced in history has actually ended up being recycled. Far more of it gets, you know, incinerated, burned, which, you know, has all kinds of, of toxic pollutant effects. A great deal of it ends up in landfill, and a lot of it ends up out in the environment, whether that's on on land or in the ocean, where it, in fact, over decades, we are starting to understand now, releases greenhouse gases and becomes a climate problem as well. So the industry, I think, you know, wants to help people feel better about plastic. So they have sort of promoted the idea of recycling. We hear, and we have heard for decades already, all kinds of promises about using recycled content and making things recyclable, most of them don't end up getting fulfilled. And in fact, the trend that we have seen is that things are getting less recyclable. You know, all kinds of packaging now is a combination of many different kinds of plastic in layers or combination. That's very hard to recycle. If you want to recycle, it needs to be sort of one type of plastic. So bottles are the most recyclable. But even there, the actual rates of of recycling are very low. And this has really been sort of a feel-good way to brush over the problem while they just keep making more plastic. Plastic is having a hugely detrimental impact on society, on our ecosystems, on our marine ecosystems, but our freshwater and terrestrial ecosystems too. Plastic is being found in, in every component of the environment. And there are a lot of links to human health impacts as well as social justice and environmental justice impacts. So we need to now move from evaluating the impacts of the contamination of our environment to actually doing something about it. So that means we need to get together globally and create 
legislation around controlling the oil and gas sector, the petrochemical sector, from making plastics, whether that is you know, capping the amount of virgin plastics that can be made every year and incentivizing true recycling in a circular economy approach. We need to shift away from this consumption and convenience idea of life. And yeah, I think we just need to make producers of plastic responsible for the materials that they make. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Today's program is part of the Big 20, our century so far, Radio National's spotlight on the first two decades of this millennium. One thing that we do need to point out is that very few experts in the field, including those we've heard from today, believe we should do away with plastic altogether. After all, it's a versatile and useful material. It's the level of usage that's the problem and how we clean up the mess we've already made. As we've heard, the rate of plastic recycling is only around 9%. Some experts even say plastic recycling is a myth. But that's not to say there aren't teams of researchers working hard to improve the process. Among them is the Centre for Sustainable and Circular Technology at the University of Bath. Plastics can be thought of as a little bit like Lego. Professor Matthew Jones. And my kids enjoy playing with Lego. They can build things and they can take things apart again and and they can do it hundreds of times. And in some ways, what we've developed is a catalyst that can do exactly the same for plastics as it is for Lego. Plastic is sometimes referred to as, as a polymer and it's made up of lots of little bits. So what we've done is effectively taken the the plastic and and chopped it up into its constituent parts and then we can make it up again. How is your approach though, how is it different from conventional recycling methods and what are the advantages? So the majority of plastics at the moment are recycled via a process that's known as mechano-recycling, i.e. they're sort of melted and used again. Whilst this is absolutely the right and fantastic thing to do, it does suffer from some limitations. You can only do this a certain number of times. It's a little bit like charging your mobile phone. You can only charge the battery a number of times before it doesn't quite do the same as what you wanted it to do in the first place. So whilst mechano-recycling is is a good thing to do, it is limited because each time you lose a little bit of performance. Now, in our approach using chemical recycling, we've developed a catalyst that can chop the polymer up. And so we can make exactly the same polymer each time with exactly the same mechanical properties. Does that mean then that even after several recycling efforts that that material will still be high grade? It won't be diminished by the process of recycling in the way that most recycled plastic is? Yes, it does. So essentially, if you can chemically recycle the plastic back into its constituent parts to remake, then yes, in theory, you should be able to recycle that again and again and again. Your work is with uh, recycling plant-based plastics, isn't it? Biodegradable plastics. Yes. How much of the actual plastic market do biodegradable plastics actually account for? 
at the moment it, it is a small percentage but this area of plastic is growing so in in the uk and in europe this is an emerging area but what we're also looking at because the plastic is similar to some of the more conventional plastics we're also taking our catalytic system that we've developed for the plant-based systems and applying it to more conventional plastics. So we, we are able also to convert PET back into its constituent monomers as well. And PET being petrochemical plastics? Yes. So PET is polyethylene terephthalate, and that is the plastic that is used to make the majority of fizzy drinks bottles. Will you be able to do your method at scale? That is currently what we are investigating. So, so what we've shown in, in Bath is that we'd be able to demonstrate this on a sort of like a couple of hundred gram to a kilo kind of scale. And what we're now doing is looking at ways to sort of upscale this process to see how commercially viable, economically viable it is to, to do this at scale. That is the area of future research. There is quite a deal of scepticism, in some cases cynicism, around recycling of plastic. Many people say that it's not really being done on the scales that the public imagine, that it's just simply too expensive and that plastic, most plastic ends up in landfill anyway. Your thoughts on that and, and would your method actually help to change that situation? I think alongside science there has to be a political driver to actually develop processes for this. And I think the role of science is to demonstrate ways of actually doing this at scale and at a cost that is going to be economically viable for both producers and, and the consumers. I think our process will work incredibly well for polyesters and polyamides and certain plastics. And it should, in theory, stop some plastics going to landfill. However, we are a few years away from that yet. Why is this still an issue in the world, given how clever we are as human beings, given how clever science is? Why are we still not able to recycle you know, the majority of plastic products? That's a tough question. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is we've designed plastics to be incredibly durable. So it's actually a little bit harder than we might think to chemically recycle the plastics. And I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, there wasn't the desire to actually do it. And, and I think in the last 10 years, we've finally woken up and smoked the coffee, as we would say in England, and realised that these are having huge detrimental effects to the environment. Matthew Jones. Finally today, to one of the many initiatives already underway to try and clean up the environment, no matter how enormous the task. Solutions don't always need to be big, though, says Pete Siglinski from the CBN Project. They can sometimes be quite small and simple. If you can imagine a CBN being similar to a cross between a garbage bin and a pool skimmer, essentially that's kind of what we've done. And we've literally just put them in the water, in marinas, ports, yacht clubs, rivers, lakes and we skim the surface of the water for microplastics, plastic debris, general marine debris, oil, fuel, all sorts of nasties. We've got it off the shelf water pump and we stuck it in the bottom of the sea bin and so we pull the water in from the top, we pump it out the bottom and in the middle we have a filter where all the plastic particles stop and so we've got cleaner water going out the bottom. So it's a very simple idea, isn't it? Extremely simple. It was probably the most obvious idea in the world that no one had thought of. 
How many of them have now been deployed and in what settings? We've got close to 1,000 units deployed in about 53 countries now. The impact's getting up there as well. We're getting about 4.2 tonnes of marine debris captured every day and I think it's 600 million litres of water filtered each day. It's definitely starting to make a difference. The top three items that we're collecting is uh, microplastics and then food wrappers and cigarette butts. And so the microplastics is anything less than five millimetres in size and that's kind of the top one. So if you think polystyrene or foam balls, uh, plastic noodles, just plastics that have been really broken up, that's what we're collecting. Now, these sound ideal for marina environments, but can they be used in, in other places? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we started in a marina, a port and a yacht club for the very simple reason that we didn't want to start out in the open ocean because uh, for us, we kind of felt that if you're going to try and you know fix the problem, you need to start upstream and the ocean is the last place to start. So we started upstream. We're preventing the plastics from going out to sea, but... I think the more important thing is that we're working on prevention. So we shouldn't have plastics in the water. We shouldn't have the sea bins in the water either. So we're working on prevention as much as clean-up. Pete Siglinski there from the Sea Bin Project. We also heard today from Professor Matthew Jones at the University of Bath, Beth Gardner, author of the book Choked, The Age of Air Pollution and the Fight for a Cleaner Future, Dr Stephanie Burrell, a Conservation Research Fellow with BirdLife International, and Dr Britt Denise Hardesty, a research scientist with the Oceans and Atmosphere flagship at the CSIRO. Go to our website if you'd like further details. My thanks to colleague and co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. This is Future Tense. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.